All right. We're about to cross the Red Sea. <laughs> We're going to be in Exodus chapter 14 tonight. I don't think we'll get to 15, but we might. Um, and so as we've been following the children of Israel out of Egypt, they have had, they're on a heading that the Lord has given them. Of course, the Lord speaks to Moses. Moses guides the people. And, uh, and so the Lord is giving them the, uh, the direction. And we pick it up in verse 1, and we read there, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn the camp before Pi Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon, Zephon rather, you shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, what we're seeing here is the Lord setting up an ambush. <laughs> it, it's amazing because I'm sure if you're one of the people in the camp, you're, you're, you're moving along with the children of Israel as Moses is directing them, and Moses, of course, being directed by the Lord, that you might be wondering, why are we going this way? And now we are kind of butting up against the sea. We're kind of in a cul-de-sac here. And, and they would be wondering um, why the Lord is directing them in this way. But the Lord is actually giving us the the rationale he is he is putting them in a position because he knows that pharaoh now is going to change his mind as he's done 10 times before and pharaoh's going to pursue them and pharaoh is going to be interested in showing them his might and when he hears from his spies or from his scouts where they are the lord is saying that Pharaoh's going to think, oh, they're bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. He's, he's going to conclude that they must be lost. They don't know where they're going. They don't know the lay of the land. And they've put themselves in a vulnerable position because now their backs are up against the sea. And we're going to pour in there like locusts. And we're going to uh, we're gonna basically drive them back to Egypt. And uh, this is something that... Uh, that just astounds you. I mean, think about the plagues that we went through. Think about the impact that those plagues would have had on the land of Egypt. These were not things that just affected Pharaoh. These are things that affected the entire population. Clearly, many, not just with the death of the firstborn, but through many of these other plagues, people suffered. Livestock died. Livestock was their livelihood. You got hail, you got fire, you got frogs, you got flies, you got blood, you got all these things. And you would think that people would, would register that this is, <laughs> this is not normal. There is, and it's, it's not even that they're so fantastic in their nature. It's that each and every one of those was pre-announced, except for a couple there were a few that were not pre-announced, but, but the things that Moses called out and the things that he said would ultimately occur came to pass without exception. And so you'd wonder why Pharaoh would even entertain the possibility of carrying on this ridiculous uh, rebellion against the word of God. But here we go, verse 5. 
Now it was told to the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? Now, I can think of 10 good reasons why they did that. It's because the Lord was dismantling their their country um, through these plagues. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Hahith-Haroth before Baal-Zephon. Now, here we have Pharaoh bringing together this massive fighting force. Understand, in that time frame, chariot was the state of the art in terms of military technology. Chariot was a platform, a moving platform, and depending on how many horses were assembled with it, it was something that could move very fast on the battlefield. It could affect a lot of foot soldiers at once. It could, it, it could flank very quickly uh, an opposing force. And here he has, it says that he, he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt. I read that to mean it, it's not just 600. It was a whole lot of them of which 600 of them were very choice which is to say that he's got the best of the best that's going with him on this. And this, this points out very clearly how quickly they were, but how quickly any of us can be in forgetting the power of God and also the goodness of God. Uh, and you might say, well, why would you bring up goodness in this context since the Egyptians suffered greatly? But we have to keep in mind, uh, if, you look at, if you look at what the Lord brought upon Egypt in one respect, you could say, wow, they suffered a lot. But in another respect, you could say he was somewhat merciful um, because of the uh, rebellion and the obstinance of Pharaoh to, to uh, basically ignore the command of God or go against it. The Lord could have wiped them out, but he didn't. He showed them enough of his power and might that they might relent and, and follow his command but no, I mean, they had just gone through the, the experience of losing their firstborn, and this affected every family in Egypt. And now all of that is forgotten, or it's put aside, or it's trampled over, and they are now amassing uh, this fighting force to go after the Israelites and to bring them back to Egypt. And this is something that, like I said, it's, it's, um, it's Pharaoh probably just thinking, maybe the Lord has run out of ammunition. Maybe he spent all of his cards uh, on what he's done thus far. And, and Pharaoh is still of the mindset, and I'm sure there's enough sycophants around him to tell him this every day, that he himself is deity. He himself is somebody to be obeyed and worshipped. And therefore, he's going to show his might by assembling all of these chariots and all of these fighting men. And of course, the psalmist uh, kind of, calls out that way of thinking when you're thinking of it in relation to God because in Psalm chapter 20 verse 7 the psalmist writes some trust in chariots and some in horses 
I suspect it may even be an allusion to this very thing, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Now, because he had asked back in Exodus 5, 2, he had said, who's the Lord that I should pay attention to him or that I should obey him? And we would think that after 10 sets of plagues, he would now know who the Lord is. But he's trusting in his chariots. He's feeling confident in the massive army that he's going after the Israelites with. And he is not trusting in the Lord. He is not acknowledging the Lord. And that is going to be obviously to his peril. It's interesting what verse 8 says in this context. We see there, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, we've talked about this in the preceding chapters. It's not that the Lord made it impossible for Pharaoh to actually obey God. Pharaoh wants to obey God, but because the Lord has intervened and hardened his heart, he can't. No, what the Lord does is he confirms through hardening that which the sinner was committed to do anyway. He doesn't extend the mercy of the possibility of a change of heart. He allows them to remain in the place of determined sin. And that's what the Lord does there. And that's why it goes on to say he pursued the children of Israel. And notice what it says about the children of Israel. The children of Israel went out with boldness. Now, again, if we do a Hebrew language study there, um, the translated Hebrew words that are here on our pages boldness include the idea of an attitude of rebellion against authority uh, you see several places in scripture where uh, god and others describe the israelites as a stiff-necked or stubborn people and you'll see in different contexts as we follow the children of israel out of egypt into the land and we go through their history that they, they exhibit this kind of stubbornness and rebellious attitude and in some cases it's, it's really, really useful. It's really um, commendable. In other cases, not so much. Um, when they are stiff-necked against the authority of God, and we'll see that as we follow them through the wilderness, that there are times when the Lord has given Moses the word of God to bring to the people, and they rebel against it. And you'll see that as we go through Exodus. But there are other times when their, their forthrightness and their attitude of of rebellion against authority is well placed and in this case relative to egypt it certainly was that they were willing to say okay we're out of here etc although we're going to see in a moment here that they <laughs> they don't uh, hang with that very well but just uh, to get uh, another perspective on what's going on here in psalm 106 between verses 7 and 12 the psalmist gives us a little bit more of the backstory of what's going on in the heart and the minds of the Israelites. And it, and it actually does underscore this idea of their rebellious heart. It says there, our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. Now, this is addressing God, that our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. We're going to see in a moment here how they start to question the direction that God is giving them and, and wondering if they should have remained in Egypt. So this is what the psalmist is referring to. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. We're going to see it in a moment here. Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. 
Then they believed his words and sang his praise. So what we're seeing here is that, uh, that the, um, the children of Israel, as we see them get to the edge of the Red Sea, and now they see this army descending upon them, they're going to rebel a little bit against what the Lord is doing here. But what Psalm 106 is showing us is, you know, the Lord is, is seldom ever doing just one thing. In, in an event or in a historic event, uh, the Lord is, is working that from multiple angles. We tend to think that when we are in a crisis, uh, we, we view the events from our unique perspective. We measure the events and the outcomes according to our plans, our purpose, and our security. And yet what we see, and so they're obviously concerned because our backs are against the Red Sea, the Egyptian army is ahead of us, and uh, it's a huge army, and it's a fierce fighting force. But they, they're not seeing it from God's perspective that God is establishing or setting up a scenario in which the Egyptians once and for all will see the power, the might, and the majesty of the Lord God. Not only will they see it, but the children of Israel also will see it. Not only will they see it, but this will become part of the legacy and the lore of God's children of Israel. And this will be something that enemies of Israel will be talking about hundreds of years into the future. This will be a, a signature event that don't mess with the God of Israel. And so the Lord is, is establishing this. And a lot of times in our own lives, we're going through something and we're looking at it purely as people do, purely from the perspective of what's happening to us, how we would like to fare through the outcome of this thing. And we're not necessarily seeing it through the eyes of the Lord. What is the Lord doing here? Is, is whatever I'm going through glorifying to the Lord? Is bearing up under a trial or a circumstance that I'm going through something that other people are going to view and they're going to get a, a, an understanding of the God that I serve that's very useful for them? And I mean, this is something that we constantly have to be sensitive to, that sometimes what God puts us through in our lives, it's, it's, it's got multifaceted benefits to it. It's, it's a sanctification event in our lives. It's, it's a way in which God is shaping us to be more Christ-like. But it's also something that God is putting on display for others to see and for others to learn by. I can tell you that, uh, Michelle could tell you, that one of the things that impressed her before we got saved, and my brother and his, his wife were saved, and they were about welcoming their first child into the world, and, and the child was born and died within two days of birth from um, issues, birth defect issues. And the way in which my wife saw my sister-in-law deal with that grief was very impactful to her. And it was something that she kind of locked away in her heart, understanding that, wow, there's some power here that maybe I don't fully understand. And that just became another tile in the mosaic that ultimately showed her Christ and had her come to Christ. And so the Lord works this way all the time. Um, he's, he's putting his people, in this case, it's the Jewish people, but in our case, it's Christians. He puts us in situations sometimes, and, and we're thinking of it solely from the perspective of what is this, what's in this for me? Uh, how can this hurt me? How can this benefit me? Uh, all of that. And we could, we, we could be 
in danger of missing the bigger picture and the bigger benefit of what the Lord is trying to do there. Um, so verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Now there's the rebellion there. There's where all of a sudden they're departing from what they've come to understand about the goodness and the might of God. And they're looking at the situation solely from their own little perspective and their concern for their lives. I, I love the sarcasm <laughs> in that verse where they're saying, what, there's no places, not enough places to bury us in Egypt to die there that you gotta bring us out in the wilderness so there'll be plenty of room to bury all our dead corpses after we get annihilated by the Egyptians. And they're, they're probably wondering here, I cannot believe this Pharaoh. I thought we were free of that. We were not only allowed to go, we were kicked out. Not only were we kicked out, but the Egyptians said, here's a whole bunch of loot. Take that and go. And now there he is again. And it's, it, it's, it's a pretty easy link to make between the pursuit of the Israelites by, by Pharaoh and the way in which the enemy pursues us. We know from scripture that Satan pursues us. He, he, he moves about like a roaring lion looking who he might destroy. And you might say, well, roaring lion, you know he's coming, you're gonna run away. Well, you know, a lion very often roars as it approaches its prey because the roar of a lion, which by the way can be heard from miles away, terrifies their prey, terrifies them, literally freezes them. And we like to think sometimes that when we are in a, in a position of, of um, attack from the enemy and, and it's oppressive and it's hard and it's awful and, and we pray with brothers and sisters and we beseech the Lord and we get deliverance from that situation, we, we, we have a tendency to think, well, got by that, that's done with now. And much to our surprise and disappointment, we find that sooner or later, the enemy pursues us again. Jesus even tells the parable about, you know, if an evil spirit is cast out of somebody and the house is swept clean, sooner or later, that demon comes back and realizes the house is clean, brings seven more like him. This is kind of the way uh, evil works. And, um, and, and, and so Pharaoh here, who has been chastised big time by the Lord and was beaten back for a time, well, guess what? There he is again. And this is the same way. This is just a proof text of how the enemy pursues us. There's never a time when you can let down your guard. Um, this is why Paul would encourage us, be careful when you think you stand, lest you fall. The enemy is waiting for an opening. The enemy is waiting for an opportunity. And uh, typically, if we get prideful, careless, um, carnal, there's the opportunity. Psalm 46.1 tells us God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And so they're experiencing this real time because here comes the enemy. And, um, and so they now are turning against what Moses has led them into. They're looking at Moses and they're saying, um, you know, why have you brought us out of Egypt? I think, I think we can all 
appreciate that very often it's easier for people to serve the bondage of the flesh than to trust the Lord in the wilderness as we're delivered from the flesh. And, and this is just true of so many people, and it's probably true of us from time to time, that uh, the way that the Lord might want to lead us out of a situation that's spiritually dangerous, we might look at that and consider it hard, difficult, maybe even impossible, and, and we're reticent to trust the Lord, and, uh, and we're perfectly happy to remain in bondage. And this is basically what they're saying here. They said to Moses, uh, because you, there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. So this is the mindset that they have, is we would rather die in bondage to our enemies than to die in the center of the will of our God. Now, again, this is kind of the beginning of a closer relationship between the children of Israel and their God. For 400 years in Egypt, you could bet that they were distant from their God if they were even connected. And so now they're starting to understand the God they serve. But in this instance, they're expressing that it would have been better to remain serving the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness, which is the place that God brought them to. And they need to know that. I'm sure when Moses was giving directions, he was saying, okay, folks, I've heard from the Lord. Here's what we're going to do. And, and so here's Moses' response to the people. In verse 13, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. Now, uh, this, is, this is one of those uh, verses that it's easy to miss the import of. Notice what he's telling them to do. He's not telling them to go find a sword. He's not telling them to build bulwarks so they can defend themselves against the slings and arrows of the Egyptians. He's telling them to stand still. And watch the Lord work. Now, I personally doubt that Moses knew exactly what the deliverance would, what form the deliverance would come in. But what Moses knew clearly was every step of this trip so far, every step of this encounter with Pharaoh, which led to the plagues, which led to the, the casting out of Egypt, which led to them being in the very spot that they were, every bit of it was orchestrated by God. And I think Moses was smart enough to know that God is not going to orchestrate a direction, a work in your life, only to get to the end and fail. God doesn't fail. God doesn't make mistakes. God never needs to change his mind. And this, again, there's a very transferable idea here for us. What does Philippians 1, 6 tell us? Paul writes, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What Paul is telling us is, look, God's put you on a path. God has saved you. He didn't save you to fail you. He saved you because he has a purpose and a plan for your life. And everybody's plan marches in a different course, on a different course. 
And some, sometimes in the course of what God has, has us on as an individual or as a family can have bumps and, and bruises along the way. And we might start to falter in our faith as these people are. It's like, God, I would have been perfectly happy to stay where I was and die there than to go through all of this agony of this march through the wilderness only to have my enemy destroy me here. Well, that's simply not going to happen. I mean, there are a lot of Christians who worry every day about attacks on them by the enemy, attacks by demons and the like in their lives. And I think this fear is misplaced. I think that can, can, can Christians be harassed? Can Christians be uh, tempted and all that? Of course we can. But are we going to lose in that kind of battle? No. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We, we, we fight from victory, not from defeat. We don't even fight with the possibility of defeat. And so the idea of trusting that the Lord will complete the work that he started in us until the day of Jesus Christ, that's a certainty. And equally, this is why Moses tells the people, stand still. In essence, what he's saying is, the Lord is working, hush up. Settle down, watch and trust. And there are times when we need to, we need to consider the same thing that um, when we're faced with a crisis, we get fearful. And when we're fearful, we talked about this a week or two ago, we lose perspective. We start to project on our situation the very worst outcome that we can imagine where we are at that time. And we can start to cast about. We can start to do things in our flesh. We can try and solve the problem uh, by our own means rather than bring it before the Lord, especially if it's, if it's of a spiritual nature. Bring it before the Lord and, and beseech him, Lord, I turn this over to you. I trust you and I'm going to wait upon you. This is the hardest thing we have to do as Christians is wait on the Lord. Um, let the Lord guide us in the situation rather than force away on the situation. Um, you know, if they had had their way, they would have gone out in front of the Egyptians with a white flag, say, okay, take us back, we'll go. Moses says, no, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish today. And then he tells them, these Egyptians you're all worried about, you're never going to see these people again. Now, again, I, I personally wonder, does Moses know what's about to happen? Uh, we don't get any indication either way, but he does say there in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And so he's essentially saying, um, folks, settle down and watch and trust. Now, it's interesting what the Lord says to Moses in verse 15. The Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. So here they are. There's probably a space between them and the sea. And there's probably an even greater space between them and the Egyptian army. But the Egyptian army is advancing on them. And um, Moses is probably there. What do we do next? And this is what leads me to believe he doesn't necessarily know how God is going to deliver them. So the Lord says to him, why do you cry out to me? Because I'm sure he's saying, Lord, what do we do now? Lord, what do we do now? Now, maybe previously Moses had been given the direction, 
that you're going to take the children of Israel this way. Remember, they didn't go by the Via Maris along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They went probably due east into the wilderness, and then they would later on circle around to the land. Um, and so the Lord says, why do you cry to me? This would lead me to conclude that Moses had already been given the direction. It's just that in Moses' mind, there's, there's a whole lot of water here. <laughs> and he's saying, Moses, it's time to stop praying now and get moving. And that sounds also very familiar in the experience of Christian people. Yes, by all means, we bring everything to the Lord in prayer. But there does come a time when, and we don't want to get ahead of the Lord. We don't want to be behind the Lord. We don't want to get ahead of the Lord. We want to move in the center of God's will. And so we bring something to the Lord in prayer. And one way or another, whether through uh, verses or scripture that the Lord gives us in his word, a word of knowledge from another brother or sister, a, a period of prayer where we get a piece about a particular direction, all of these things can be indicia of God speaking to you and, and giving you direction. There comes a time to act. Uh, there comes a time to move forward. This is why the, the view that we've always taken with, with missions and supporting missions is we get involved in supporting missions when they're in the field. Uh, we don't get involved with missions when the missionary is getting ready to get ready to go. Um, they have to have a clear direction from the Lord and they've got to be in motion. Now, that's just a personal preference. This is not to say that uh, people who are planning are not sincere, anything like that. But there is that, that tendency sometimes that we hear from the Lord, we get peace about it, but maybe not enough peace to actually move forward. We, we find other reasons. It's like uh, the, the man that came to Jesus and, and, and you know, the Lord says, you know, take up your cross and follow me. And the young man says, yeah, but, but I got to bury my father and I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And the Lord kind of responds in, in a way that you might think is callous when he says, well, let the dead bury their de the dead. Uh, he, he's, he's saying that, look, there's a sense of urgency when you have a clear direction to follow the Lord. And this is what the Lord is telling Moses is, you, you, you've got the direction. I've given you the heading. Get moving. And this is, uh, you know, so there's a time to pray and then there's a time to act. And so he gives further direction by saying, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. At this point, Moses might say, say what? Lift up my rod and part the sea? Who does that? You might be asking, why did the Lord even need Moses to lift up his rod and do anything? And this is where we have to understand that God delights in using human agency. It's not that he can't act without it, but he uses those opportunities of human agency to build the faith of the agent and to give a visible thing to human beings who very much are in the tactile, visible world, give them something to release their faith over. And this is, this is a good reason why the Lord gave the power of healing to the apostles when he did. Um, this is why I personally would not classify myself as a cessationist. 
It's, that's a theolog theological position that says the, 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 the sign gifts and the charismatic gifts of, of what we read about in the book of Acts are no longer in operation today. Uh, I personally don't believe that. I, I personally believe the Lord can do whatever he chooses to do in any way that he wants. Where does it say in the Bible that God has stopped working in a specific way? Now, I, I would be very readily admit that the Lord needed sign gifts before the whole counsel of God was written because it was a way of authenticating the words that were spoken by those who would ultimately write scripture. But the Lord uses human agency all the time. Again, think about the process of salvation. The Lord could have, could have affected salvation in the hearts of unbelievers in an infinite number of ways, including angels flying around, including, uh, you know, just go and eat fruit from that tree and you'll automatically receive salvation. I mean, he could have done it any one of a number of ways. How does he choose to do it? Through redeemed sinners, walking billboards of grace that, hey, let me tell you about what happened to me. Here's who I was. This is how I lived. This is what I believed. And then I had an encounter with the living God. And this is what he did in me. And this is what his word says about his desire to do that in you. That's human agency. He could have picked any one of a number of different ways that he could do it. But here he's using Moses as his servant, as somebody who is, let's use the word, an intermediary between God and the people. And so God is acting through this man and he tells him, lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. You see how the Lord is setting up this ambush. He's, he's making it look like the answer to a maiden's prayer. Ah, we've got him right where we want him. This was the same way, by the way, that Custer got wiped out at, at uh, Little Bighorn. The way in which the Indians uh, constructed their positions on the field got Custer to go into a valley thinking that he had a small force of Indians that he could vanquish when in fact there are gazillions of Indians waiting for his commitment so that they can go and wipe him out. And the Lord's kind of setting this up right here. And, um, and I indeed will harden their hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. See, again, he's working on that theme that these people need to understand who they're dealing with. When I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, there are those that criticize us and our faith because they see our God as an egomaniac. They see our God as somebody who is willing to promote himself over everybody else and not caring what happens to other people for the sake of his own promotion. And this is where uh, you can be sure that people who think that way are approaching God on a peer level. They, they evaluate what God does and says on the basis of him being at a peer level. And this is hogwash. If there is anyone who has reason to be centered on themselves, it's God. Because God knows that the best and most important thing that ever can happen to a human being is to understand who God is 
understand who he who they are and understand that God's desire for them is that they would know him and if it takes wiping out uh, a pursuing army to drive home that point it's a price worth paying and this is the same thing with with what happens to a lot of people in our world this is why the Lord orchestrates things such that sin has its own recompense when we fall into an area of sin or when somebody's determined to be in a particular sin, there is a consequence that bites and many times it bites hard. And it's not because God is vengeful. It's not because God is sadistic. It's because he is loving and believe it or not, merciful because God knows the heart of every human being and knows what it would take for somebody to get on their knees, humble themselves in the sight of the Lord so that they might be lifted up. And so <laughs> he's going to do this so that the Egyptians, the Pharaoh and all of them, they will know who they're dealing with. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went up before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud of darkness to one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that one did not come near the other that night. So the Lord is basically using this intervention of this pillar between the two camps. On the one hand, it's, a, it's lighting the way for the Israelites. On the other hand, it's obscuring the view of the Egyptians and putting them in the dark, and, uh, and so um, the Lord is, is basically setting the table for his people to have this deliverance through the sea. And uh, so it came between the camp. Let's see. Uh, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground and their waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now let's just stop there for a moment because there has been a lot of scholarly debate about this particular miracle. And there's a number of different approaches to it. And one of the ones that many people latch onto as being the most persuasive is a linguistic argument. Because in the Hebrew, the sea that they're crossing is, is, in, is called Yam Suf, which actually translates to reed sea, R-E-E-D, seed, or sea. And so the idea is this, and, and, and there are scholars who put this forth, and particularly uh, liberal scholars will say that, look, what's being referred to here is not the Red Sea, which we know is a, is a major body of water uh, and, and, and has considerable, considerable depth to it. Uh, no, this is one of the lakes that's above that uh, Suez uh, finger of the Red Sea, uh, that's that's shallow and uh, and and has reeds around it, um, and that what's being referred to there is simply one of these lakes that doesn't have very deep water, 
And it's conceivable that the wind that comes from the east, as it says here, could, could blow in such a way that it would be very possible to make your way through that. And, and the, that, that's worth investigating because that particular view of what's going on here would basically say that we're not dealing with a, a, a flat miracle here. What we're dealing with is a scientific explanation of events that are, for, that are told in Scripture in a way that makes it sound like folklore. And I, I, I think the argument fails in the sense that, uh, that when you look at other references in the Bible to what's going on here, um, in other places, and, and particularly when the, the Hebrew scriptures were, were um, translated into Greek, the first translation of the Hebrew scriptures and anything was Greek, it was the Septuagint, um, the, the um, translators very deliberately noted Red Sea. And when you see in other places in scripture referring back to this event, it's always Red Sea, very clearly, the body of water we know of that you see on a map as the Red Sea. And, and so what we're, what we're getting from this passage is what would be a true miracle. And one of the indications right in the text as we see there in verse 22, that as they passed through, there was waters were a wall to them on their right hand and their left. So if you're going through deep water and the Lord parts it, literally parts it so that this massive company of people could make their way through it, the water would be piled up on both sides. It wouldn't just blow away. Uh, he's, he, that's not what it's telling us. It's telling us that the waters were piled up on either side as if you made a highway through the middle of it, a tunnel, except there's no roof to it, and you just make your way through it. And so this is, this is, um, this is a point of discussion among scholars, but I think the better reason view in looking at the Bible's commentary on itself and looking at the plain meaning of the passage of what it was like for them as they passed through this sea, it would have to be a, a deep sea. You can argue whether it's reed or red. I believe it's red based upon the other references to it in Scripture, in New and Old Testament alike. But either way, it would have to be a place where the water is quite deep, deep enough so that the water's piled up on either side, deep enough so that as the Egyptians are making their way through it, they are drowned, okay? It's not like it was ankle-deep water and they somehow drowned. That would in itself be a miracle. So, um, so this is what we're, we're reading here. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, ver Psalm 77, verses 16 through 20. Again, the Bible commentating on itself. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters. Your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses. And so this, this uh, account here is nothing short of a spectacular miracle a spectacular deliverance um, so we go on there and we read the egyptians verse 23 pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea all pharaoh's horses his chariots and his horsemen 
And it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. So now he's stirring in the heart of the Egyptians to say, "Eh, this isn't looking real good. And they're starting to get very fearful. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Now, this, when it says he took off their chariot wheels, some of the other translations, and this was also in the Septuagint, read more that he bound their wheels because to go on and say that they drove with great difficulty, well, if the wheels were off, they wouldn't be driving at all. Uh, But either way, obviously, all of a sudden, these chariots are getting bound up in the midst of of the uh, passageway through the water. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. So again, you get a clear impression that these walls of water that they were passing in the midst of are now collapsing down upon them and uh, doing so in such a manner that they're going to drown Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. So this is a total wipeout here. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and their left. You see, it's repeated for emphasis because the Lord clearly knew that people would want to explain it away. This is why I I continue to say... um, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you, can, if you can get past that statement, is there anything too hard for God? Can God make a path through a very deep sea? You better believe it. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Now, something I said a little while ago in this Bible study about how people can forget the goodness of God, the majesty and might of the Lord. Here they just, they literally saw this fearsome army that they were so fearful of that they wanted to return to Egypt. Now they see the corpses dead on the beach and they believe and they give their hearts to the Lord and they will retreat from that when the next uh, challenge comes up. And this is the way it is. We have to stay close to the Lord at all times because the enemy is always ready to exploit fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And when we're in ignorance and fear, we lose perspective. And before you know it, we want to go back to Egypt. But they saw the majesty of the Lord. And like I said, this will be an event that enemies of Israel will refer back to for hundreds of years into the future. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. Oh, by the way, um, next week, is the showing of Jesus' revolution. The the prayer time will be moved up to 6.15. The movie will start at 7.05 sharp. And uh, come and enjoy that. It's, It's really a great movie. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to study your word. Lord, we thank you for this history that you have preserved in your word that we might be able to learn from this challenge, from... Uh, Lord, what these people went through and what they had to 
uh, do to trust you and to see your, your defense of them, your deliverance of them. And, and Lord, we know that you have delivered us from the enemy. And, and so, Lord, we need to continue to trust you even when we're fearful, even when we're doubting, because we know, Lord, that you have wonderful thoughts for us and you have a plan for our life and a purpose for our life. And, Lord, you will complete the work that you started in us until the day of Jesus Christ. And so we give you thanks and praise for that. Thank you, God, for meeting us here tonight. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.